This panel is entitled Reading Between the Lines Beyond the Text of Printed Sources. The first paper in this panel is by Samantha Sherry of the University of Edinburgh. It is entitled The Elusive Censor, The Difficulties of Researching Soviet Censorship. I wondered when I came to write this paper whether it was a bit harsh to call, to, to use the word difficulties, um, especially in the context of the sort of freeing up of archives when, you know, people from, who worked in the Soviet era had real difficulties and we were really very lucky. But um, nonetheless, looking at censorship, I think, does present certain specific difficulties. Um, we've got, in the case of censorship, a number of book-length examinations of uh, the censorship system, which have been great, which have been based on these new records that have come to light and since 1991. Some personal accounts as well from censors themselves, although those are really limited, um, unfortunately. And so that's given us a really good overview of the, how the censorship fun, uh, system functions as a whole, as a bureaucratic system. But for me and for my research, it seems that it's still difficult to research the specificities of censorship. Um, it's difficult to understand in specific cases where information is missing or destroyed. Um, that is how censorship worked on the level of the text, which is what I'm interested in in particular. So in that sense, that's what I mean when I talk about difficulties of researching Soviet censorship. Um, and that's what I mean when I talk about how the censor is elusive, him or herself. Um, and so there's a kind of problem when we come to think about the details of how we research censorship. So, not sure how to this go forward. Yeah. Aha. So, censorship in the Soviet Union. Um, is the topic of my PhD thesis as a whole, and I'm looking at censorship of foreign literature. So that censorship of literature that was translated from English into Russian um, between 19, about 1933 and the mid-60s, mid so from the Stalin period to the thaw. I'm using this case studies, um, literature, mainly novels, but a few other kinds of texts like autobiography. Literature published, um, translated from English, into Russian, published in two journals, which is Internationalnaya Literatura and Inostrannaya Literatura. And the first is published between 1933 and 42, and Inostrannaya Literatura is still published today, but I'm looking at the periods between 1955, when it was founded, and about 1965. So, looking at translation as a kind of particular issue, my specific focus then is on the texts themselves. Um, I want to understand how texts were altered in this process of translation, editing, and publication. And I'm particularly interested in basically how, why, and who in the censorship process, um, what results of censorship were on the textual level. And I'm hoping to sort of look at how foreign discourses were mediated in the Soviet Union. So all that's to say that my main interest isn't really in the institution of censorship, um, which has already been done admirably, as I've said, in sort of book-length examinations, particularly by people like Alan Bloom and um, Babichenko and Garyaeva, who have all written really excellent works. I'm interested in the details of what was done. And that's actually proved more difficult than I first, first thought it would. I thought there would be lots of um, records on this kind of thing, but it turned out not to be the case. So the main archival resources for censorship in general in the former Soviet Union, well, in Russia, I suppose, um, and their weaknesses. We've got the main source really for institutional level information is Glavlit, who's the main censorship administration body, and that's Fond 9425 in Garth. But it 
seems that um, of only of the nine OPC that the website says there are only three are accessible. Uh, the archivists just deny all knowledge of the other ones. Um, they don't seem to know where they are or what what's in them. So only three are accessible. Um, funds one and two are really quite big. Fund three is is quite small and doesn't contain anything very useful for me. Um, mainly, I think economic records. Uh, another problem is that some records have been destroyed. The Stalin era holdings are really quite weak. Um, and then there's, there's probably more for the 1950s and 60s, which I'm interested in, but it's weak in different areas. So there's a lot of information about the procedures of Gladly, about um, economic decisions that have been taken, about staff, re uh, staff pay, staff records. Um, just not so much on the texts themselves. So what, a lot of what remains in the archives is kind of irrelevant for me. Um, although illuminating, it really depends on what your focus is, is on here. If you're interested in how it functions as an institution, it's great. Um, if you're interested in how it functioned in the text, then not so much. So there are some documents on the censorship of foreign, foreign material. And again, it's always on an institutional level. It's always about how foreign texts were imported into the country, uh, what were allowed and what weren't, what were, uh, which texts were allowed um, to be sort of sent on to their recipients and which texts were kept in the Spetskran in the libraries, which is the, the closed access stack. Um, there, is, there are some censorship records um, on what was taken out of texts in particular. Um, these mainly seem to survive in the Stalin era, but they're very, they're very basic and unfortunately there was no reference to any of the texts that I had studied. Um, and those kind of swadki are completely absent by the time you get to the post-Stalin era. That's partially explained by the changes in the censorship system. Um, the post-Stalin era, era really privileged editorial censorship over sort of institutional censorship. But again, it makes it harder to pin down exactly what happened and what sort of results this had in the text. Uh, and actually, in the post-Stalin era, there's a lot of letters from uh, kept in the Gladly archive that basically say, we do not censor texts, we don't make changes, don't do it. Um, it's a disciplinary offence. You must go back to the editor. So again, that's what I mean when I talk about the elusive censor. We have so much information, thousands and thousands of files on what censors got paid and you know who was in on a particular day and where the keys to the special locked room went. Um, but from that, it was difficult for me to understand how censorship operated. Um, and I wondered, you know, would we have to design ourselves to never really understand the censor as a person, how they worked and how they operated? Um, and how can we study censorship then when the records themselves are, in a sense, censored? So there's a few ways to get around it. You can use other archives. Um, the regional and local archives apparently have stronger holdings in this area because not so much seems to have been destroyed. Um, one in particular is Carlite, which um, Jan Plamper used in a 2001 article about censorship in Petrosovodsk, and it apparently has very full holdings. Uh, the Leningrad archive apparently is also fuller, and I think that Eileen Bloom wrote about, um, about that in his book, Kakatadielos Villa Leningradia which is on post-Stalin censorship. Um, and I think that he did go to Leningrad, particularly because Gladly's holdings were so, so poor. Um, and I've sort of indicated a couple of the Leningrad ones there. 
these are archives that I have personal experience in, unfortunately, but they seem to be stronger than gladly. Um, the, one of the main advantages of the kind of regional archives is that they hold correspondence with Glavely in the central uh, the central institution. So some of the stuff that doesn't exist in Moscow anymore apparently can be reconstructed from local uh, local censorship records. Um, uh, personal records are also a valuable resource. Um, Sorokin, who was a censor and I think actually became either very high up ahead of Glavely in later years, has done a couple of interviews. Um, they're useful as a supplement to your archival research, but they really don't exist in any great number. Of course, for my research, I mean, I was in the middle of a research topic by the time I came to do archival research, and I had already done a great deal of close comparison between English and Russian texts. So for me, it wasn't an option to go to Karelia or to go to um, St. Petersburg, because I wanted to look at the censorship of the particular text that I had in mind. So I needed somehow to reconstruct the act of censorship on these texts. Um, and also, just as a side note, it's worth saying that these archives are valuable and probably fuller than Glavly, but I think they have some of the main failings of the Glavly archive as well, in that there still isn't that very detailed information on text textual censorship as well. So as far as my research went, I went back to the source, source that I was looking at I'm interested in the, the details of what happened in the translation, what happened between translation and publication. Um, and again, like I said, sort of who and the why and the exactly what happened in censorship. So I, I thought it was useful to look at the, sen the censorial agents themselves, as I've been kind of calling them in my thesis. And that's why I, had, I came back to look at the censor's presence in the journals themselves. and. I've looked at the archival holdings of the two journals that are my case studies. That's um, Internazionalna Literatura and Inestarnaya Literatura. And they're both held in Regali uh, in two different fonts. And they both have thousands and thousands of uh, uh, files about the, the journals as well. Um, so yeah, once I'd got past the famous Dima, who I don't, I'm not going to mention aside to say that the reign of terror that Polly described is probably really true. Um, I managed to track down sort of three main kinds of uh, source that let me look at censorship, which are firstly reviews of the books submitted to the journals. These were reviews which were commissioned by editors from the editorial board or by uh, external experts and usually people who had knowledge of foreign languages and foreign literature and who wrote, were maybe literary critics or the like. These reviewed the original language text which had gotten through the um, initial stages of censorship to actually be allowed into the Soviet Union, um, usually had been acquired by the journal or brought in sort of unofficially. Uh, and they wanted to judge how suitable these texts were for the publication. This was really useful. This was um, so much more useful than anything that I found in GAF because it actually lets us see what standards apply to the texts. It lets us understand the criteria to which texts are judged suitable for inclusion or, or by which they were you know, on the contrary, excluded from publication. And th this was particularly useful because they exposed what um, I sort of call Soviet discursive standards. Um, my main conclusions from that were that these books were always judged in relation to socialist realism in a kind of a broad sense. Maybe it's better to say something like in relation to Soviet discursive norms. Um, they judged the ideological position of the author 
uh, if the books were rejected, it usually is because the author has either perceived to be anti-Soviet or anti-communist, or has said anti-Soviet, anti-communist things in the past. Um, and the political position of the book itself is obviously important. Um, what was interesting about these reviews was that we can see the, the actual um, progression of the standards that would apply to the books. I've mainly looked at the 1950s and 60s sources um, in my archival research so far, uh, and I want to go back and look at the Stalinist era, but um, what I can see from about 1955 to 1965 is there's actually a relaxing of the standards that are applied to the books. Um, less political standards are applied, and um, it seems like it's just a bit more relaxed and once we get into sort of the 1960s. As long as the book's not anti-Soviet, um, more apolitical books were allowed. So the reviews then, we can sort of reconstruct the censorship pro process as it happened in the editorial board itself. And we can understand what the standards are when choosing foreign texts um, and choosing to censor others out of the, out of the pages of the journal, basically. Um, and for me, that's, that gives us an idea of what this canon of foreign literature might be, and we can understand how, how it was constructed and what the discussions were in its construction. Um, and again, it allows us to appreciate the debates about the choice of text. And debates become really important when, uh, in my next sort of source that I used, which was the minutes of the editorial <coughs> meetings. Very, there were various types of minutes really held by Indra Gali, and that's minutes of the editorial board on their own, editorial board um, with representatives of other bodies. So there was the Foreign Commission of the Writers' Union, quite often attended. There were sometimes meetings with authors themselves, foreign authors that is, who would visit the journal, um, and representatives of the Ministry for Foreign Affairs and things like that. So those were really useful for a few reasons for me. First of all, um, we get an insight into the debates that sort of shaped the inclusion of um, foreign literature in the journals, and we can see the development of standards uh, and attitudes to foreign literature over the years, and we can understand the background against which they chose text and, and against which they censored texts sort of on the textual level as well. And we can see what editors were concerned about. They often talked to the authors who they were publishing. They talked to people who they thought they would publish next, and they actually asked them to take pieces out of the book, or for permission to take pieces out of the book um, that wouldn't have been suitable or appropriate or interesting, is a word that they quite often use, wouldn't have been interesting to a Soviet reader. So you can see that the editors have a really clear understanding of what the constraints were um, and what the overall sort of political situation was at this, the period in time they were working. Um, and the editorial meetings are possibly mo most useful for the specific references they make to the text that they published. So there, there are a lot of meetings that are plans for a future issue in which they talk about exactly what sections will have to be removed in order to make a text publishable, in order to make it um, suitable for the Soviet reader. And there's always this idea of the Soviet reader that comes in time and time again. And another important thing about the editorial meetings is that we see the interference of external agents in the censorship process. So we have lots of um, minutes of meetings where someone from the Ministry of um, Foreign Affairs and sometimes the Ministry of Internal Affairs as well, or party representatives, advise against including a particular text. Um, and for me, that was really interesting because we can see how 
how censorship really has become the sort of domain of the editor because the people who are external agents never forbid anything outright. They come in and say that it's not wise to publish a particular text. Um, no one's going to be interested in this novel by Joyce, for instance. Um, and never, never that politically you cannot do this. It's just that maybe no one cares about that kind of author. No one is interested in modernism. Um, we'd rather have some progressive uh, authors and that would be much more that would be fascinating for the Soviet reader. <laughs> um, so again, we've got this proof of external interference, but we can see just quite in quite a lot of detail how it worked and what its limitations were. Uh, and I think that, for me, that's been really useful in kind of complicating the idea of censorship. Because one of the things that I wanted to do in the thesis was um, not to just conceive of censorship as the imposition of power by you know, the party upon the writers, but as a kind of process or a set of processes of negotiation. And so these, these reviews certainly in these minutes really, really foreground this idea of negotiation between all these different parties. Um, and the third type of source that I used, which was a little bit different, was the translators' typescripts themselves. And I can only talk about the post-Stalin sources here because I haven't seen any of the, the typescripts from the 30s and 40s. Um, they do exist, but unfortunately they're more limited in number. For I think for the 50s and 60s, we have typescripts for almost all the texts that I wanted to study. And for the 30s and 40s, maybe about six. So it's a lot more limited. Um, basically what we've, what we've got here is these typescripts which are produced by the, tra the translator. And they tend to be translated in their entirety, either not abridged by the translator themselves, but censorship occurs after the translation process, which was a surprise for me because I assumed that the translator would be self-censoring all the time. So what we can see in these, these typescripts is the editorial that are, changes that are made, and sometimes in different hands. So we can see that there's maybe two or three editors who've actually had a hand in altering the text. Um, there's cover sheets which note the um, page numbers of problematic areas particularly anything that's negative about the Soviet Union, material that's you know, overtly sexual content, anything that's particularly taboo, um, and an indication that that's been passed on. Unfortunately, I don't know exactly who it's been passed on to because I can't find any records that follow up, but again, it indicates that idea of negotiation um, among the editorial team and between the editorial team and sort of external agents as well. So, what I got from these typescripts then is that in the 50s and 60s at least, all the censorship of texts, um, which is preserved in the published text, occurs before it even reaches Glavleet. Um, and that's kind of backed up by secondary sources anyway, but it was really interesting just to see it in action and to see exactly how this, these ideas kind of worked. Um, there's a few different actors involved in the censorship process. There's negotiation between all these actors about what is censored, um, whether that's within the editorial board or with external bodies. And some things that are flagged up as problematic actually survive into the text, so there's, there is definitely negotiation somewhere along the line. Um, and for me, that was the most valuable source that I could have found, and that was the kind of thing that just didn't exist in Glavleet's archive at all, was these really explicit um, sort of exposés of how the censorship processes all worked on the textual level. So I'll just conclude with sort of 
a few points then about studying censorship. Um, this is just based on my personal experiences, really. You, I've been able really sort of using t um, sources which aren't explicitly censorship sources and which aren't really part of the official record of censorship, I've been able to kind of reconstruct the censorship process. Um, so my advice really in this is what you can take from official sources like Glavlee really depends on what aspect of censorship you want to study. Um, but to get at the details of censorship and to understand how that worked on a more detailed level, you really have to find alternative sources and you really have to find the text themselves somewhere. Um, this is particularly true in the post-Stalin era when censorship is so embedded in the publication process. So accessing the documents themselves, whether that's drafts or proofs or you know, manuscripts from some kind, is really, I think, the most useful thing that you can do. And to that end, it's probably more useful to look at the archives of publishers or journals themselves than to go straight to Glavlee or party archives or anything like that. Um, personal accounts of editors and people like that can also shed quite a lot of useful light on censorship, and they often talk about it kind of as an aside to their other work. But, you know, maybe like, like anything else, you've got to take it with a pinch of salt. But it can produce a useful sort of glimpse of the personal involvement in the censorship process. Um, and that kind of thing you can maybe find in personal archives or in published memoirs. And I know that the um, Novi Mir editors, I think there was a, there's quite a lot of published reminiscences on their part. So overall, really, the message is just to think laterally. In order to uncover the work of the censor, um, him or herself, it's usually necessary to look closer to home um, or sort of further down the chain, really, at the sources related to the text that you're studying rather than at the higher levels of Glavli and the party. Um, and again, with so much in re archival research, you have to think laterally and think about where you can fill in gaps. That's really the main piece of advice that I've got for anyone who wants to look at that. Thanks.